Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, this is on the same level as Enron and Arthur Anderson. Welcome to episode 46 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies? I'm your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Carrying Group. It was July of 1993 in Hong Kong, the hottest time of the year. A time when summer monsoons would bring torrential downpours without so much as a moment's notice. And on this particular day, an old lady, while making her daily rounds at her banana plantation, came across a body by the main road. (gasps) Despite the heat and humidity, she was able to make out what looked like a white cord twisted around the neck of a limp, lifeless body. When the police arrived, they determined that the victim had been dead for at least a day, though they could not figure out the who or why of the gruesome situation. The body came with it, no wallet, no ID. The only clue they could find was a Malaysian coin caught in the lining of the deceased man's trousers. Within 24 hours, officials would come to identify the body as 34-year-old Jalil Ibrahim an executive with one of the largest banks in Southeast Asia. Ibrahim had been assigned to investigate and probe details to uncover a scandal that entailed some very large and questionable loans. Loans that were issued to a Hong Kong-based company. That company was called Carrying Group. Welcome to the story of Carrion Group. Thrust into the limelight in 1977, swimming with the fishes in 1983. One of the things I love about researching for The Great Fail is curating episodes around case studies, covering the nostalgic brands that we all remember from our childhood, the recent startup failures that are still fresh in the media, 
and then getting in a mix of different industries. Retail, tech, consumer services. And then once in a while, I come across a story like Carrying Group, something that's so scandalous it's impossible not to cover. (gasps) Oh my God. Despite it being almost four decades since the collapse of this huge conglomerate, we still don't know the full story. But what we do know was that behind this catastrophic failure stood some very fascinating characters. The Prime Minister of Malaysia, a charismatic CEO, several government officials, some high-level executives, and between them, all aligning to create a labyrinth of business dealings that would blow up into a high-profile investigation into corruption, the murder of an auditor, and a mysterious drowning, which eventually ended up as one of the largest bankruptcies in Hong Kong history. It was 1977, and in the United States, Jimmy Carter was sworn in as the 39th president. Star Wars debuted on the big screen. Elvis Presley died at the age of 42. The United States returned the Panama Canal back to Panama. And in China, after Mao Zedong's death, communist leader Deng Xiaoping rose to power and led China through a series of economic market reforms. And at the southern coast of China was Hong Kong, then a British colony in the midst of an exciting series of economic and infrastructure reforms, events that would hasten its transformation into one of the world's financial epicenters, with businesses and opportunities emerging in massive waves. At the heart of the story was George Tan, a Malaysian businessman living in Hong Kong. Rumors had it that Tan first came to Hong Kong in the early 1970s after declaring bankruptcy from a few small civil engineering businesses that he owned in Singapore. And if that was the case, it seemed like a fresh start in Hong Kong's thriving economic powerhouse would be highly advantageous for an ambitious man just like him. Tan started working at a property firm and then began buying up properties himself when Hong Kong was experiencing a dip in the market. Now, to provide some context, back then, Hong Kong's government had an initiative to improve the quality of public housing. Part of this was the building and selling of houses at below market prices to help people own property. In turn, this led to a robust real estate market. But it wasn't until 1981 that Carrion and George Tan would catapult into the limelight, with its claim to fame being the purchase of the Gammon House, an iconic commercial tower. What made the purchase noteworthy was that within a few months, it sold for 70% premium over what Carrion acquired it for. Naturally, this led to many within the business and real estate worlds asking, Who exactly is George Tan, and how on earth did he pull off such a sale? Additionally, it attracted a lot of media attention, including journalist Philip Bowring. Well, I was the business editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review, which was a major weekly magazine published out of Hong Kong. 
but also dealing with Southeast Asia. So carrion, you know, began to come to my attention fairly early on, i.e. back in about 1980, because of its, its sudden rise and out of nowhere in particular. So there was a lot of uh, misuse to the origin of carrion. That same year, Carrion leveraged that notoriety to become a publicly traded company to begin raising money from investors. From that point, it seemed like there was a bottomless pit of capital for them to draw from, with seemingly everyone wanting in on what Carrion and Tan were selling. The operations expanded outward from real estate, leading to Carrion's evolution into a true Hong Kong conglomerate, branching into other segments like tourism, shipping, insurance, taxi fleets, restaurants, and even pesticides. Eventually, it's the real estate empire that had properties spanning across Asia and beyond. Carrion's territory had included Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, Japan, and even the United States. And the source of its capital was rock solid, with most of it coming from prestigious banks and entities. One of their biggest funding partners was the Bank Bumaputra Malaysia Berhad, which at one time was the second largest bank in Asia. Now, let's call them BBMB because it's a bit of a mouthful. So BBMB had a subsidiary called Bumaputra Malaysia Finance, BMF, which was set up to help Malaysia get more involved into economic opportunities. And Carrion seemed just like the right kind of fit, an entry point into an extremely lucrative series of businesses. The interesting thing really is, so not only did he do these deals, but how did he come by the finance to get started in the first place? And I think the answer to that lies in a company called Bumiputra Malaysia Finance, which was a Hong Kong subsidiary of Bank Bumiputra, which is a state-owned bank in Malaysia. And Tan was close to the people who ran the BMF in, in Hong Kong, particularly someone called Lorraine Osman, who was a very entrepreneurial, uh, actually quite a charming person. And you know, George Tan himself was had a lot of lot of charm. So BMF was a source of funds for some of these initial deals. Led by the gregarious, charming Tan, Carrion soon became the talk of the town and ranked among the top property owners in Hong Kong, with huge backing from BMF, who were issuing the most loans they ever did in the history of their bank. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
With a seemingly inexhaustible amount of funding coming in, Karen had an inviolable trajectory, but it wasn't long before things went sideways. By 1982, it was rumored that a major partner of Tan's by the name of Chung Cheng Man wanted out. Chung's family owned the company that Tan worked for when he first arrived in Hong Kong. Now, Chung wanted out because he discovered a huge amount of debt being accumulated from Carrion's business ventures. It smelled foul to Chung, and Tan, hoping not to screw up his current situation, paid Chung off with an overly generous severance package. Because Chung knew that there were some improper dealings by Tan and some of the other executives involved. Now, before we get into those improper dealings, I think it's important to address what was occurring on the political front. At the time, Hong Kong was a British colony, which Great Britain had held since they invaded China in 1841. But around the 1970s, China wanted the land back. Negotiations began in the early 80s and started to get heated in a big way, leading to a state of uncertainty and political instability. As a result, real estate prices in Hong Kong cratered in 1982. Of course, this affected Carrion, because by the end of the year, they were on rocky footing and owed billions of dollars to major banks around the world. Among the biggest losers was Malaysia's BMF, which lost about $6 billion, including $600 million that it had loaned to Carrion. Now, back to the improper dealings. The problem was how BMF was funding Carrion. They weren't following any of the necessary protocols, skipping all the shady paperwork coming from Carrion, including their complex conglomerate that consisted of about 200 companies. And BMF was approving all those loans without the proper collateral. It seemed everyone was so dazzled by Tan that they bypassed everything else. What's worse was that the BMF funded Carrion through a line of credit via a new $2 company. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it refers to companies that are set up with a minimum capital of two bucks. And if the company defaults on its loans, they're only liable to pay back $2. Not exactly a gold standard of reliability. Well, it wasn't just BMF. Carrion was receiving huge bank loans from Citibank, Chase, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corp, and many others. The collapse of Carrion quickly became a major financial scandal. And if things couldn't get any worse, the saga took yet another twist. Because of the BMF Association, in December 1982, a man by the name of Jalil Ibrahim was sent to audit and report on what actually happened. A senior BBMB auditor, Ibrahim was known to be highly effective at his job. On one of those days, he was invited to a meeting at Hong Kong's Regent Hotel. And as he was in the middle of a meeting, he received a phone call from someone at the bank. But mid-sentence and out of nowhere, an assailant struck him over the head, and the receiving end of that call was met with a dial tone, not realizing that someone had just strangled him with the belt of a bathrobe. 
Then BMF in Malaysia, the head office, I began to get a bit worried about what on earth was going on at BMF and how much more money it was lending uh, to Carrion. Carrion was about to go under and was appealing to BMF to lend it more money to it as part of a rescue operation. And it was on the point of doing that when BMF had sent in an auditor by the name of Jalil Ibrahim to look into what was really going on at BMF. Well, for his pains, this uh, auditor, who was regarded as uh, young but brilliant and honest, ended up dead in a banana grove in Hong Kong's new territories. There were different accounts of who ordered the killing of Ibrahim. Some say that it was an order from a high-ranking Malaysian official to cover up the trail leading back to the government. Others have said it was an order from George Tan himself. But despite the rumors and innuendos, there was one person that did confess to the killing, and his name was Mac Fu Tan, a Malaysian Chinese businessman. Max's confession explained that after he strangled Ibrahim, he stuffed his body into a bag, dragged it to the lobby with the help of a porter and a taxi driver, made it to a rental car dealership, rented a van, and drove it to the banana plantation where he dumped the body. Allegedly, Mac then jumped out of a third-floor window to escape, only to fall break a few bones, and end up at the hospital where he was questioned for hours, resulting in a write-up and taped confession of the murder. There's just one problem. To this day, there are no records of this report. A day after the body was discovered, the police identified it as Ibrahim, after his co-workers had reported him missing. When the police investigated further, they came across personal diaries and letters, seeing that he was troubled by his findings and was onto something huge, enough to reveal dangerous dealings that were to decimate his bank and jeopardize his country's well-being. Less than a year later, in April 1984, John Wimbush, a Carrion legal advisor and a partner in one of Hong Kong's most prestigious law firms, was found dead in the swimming pool of his Hong Kong home with a manhole cover tied to his neck. The other factor which came into play was Hong Kong's largest law firm, Deacons. Senior partner of Deacons signed off on the deal whereby Carrion was supposed to have sold a big profit, Gammon House, to another company. But it turned out this deal had never been consummated, and yet Deacons had signed off on it. The senior partner concerned then ended up dead in his own swimming pool. That was declared to be a suicide on the grounds that he would so disgrace the company by having done this that he had no choice but to kill himself. Winbush was scheduled to be interviewed by police in connection to the sale of the Gammon House, the sparkling tower responsible for so much early success. But why would the sale of the Gammon House be a cause of any concern? And his first big deal was actually simply to buy an office block called Gammon House. He didn't develop it at all. He bought it and then on-sold it at apparently a, a very large profit. The fact was, 
later revealed that actually the deal never really went through. But it was announced and Carrion recorded the supposed profit made from it in its accounts. That was, that was actually one of the deals which really sort of got it moving. Winbush's death was officially ruled a suicide, but not everyone believed that to be the case. Over the next several years, a web of corruption, financial mismanagement, and greed emerged. And then every investigation thereafter showed up more and more debts. And from that, you know, it gradually became clear, you know, how many bankers had been bought. So you not only had Price Waterhouse as, as the auditor and John Marshall as the chairman of the board of Carrion, exposed as participants in this massive, I mean, it was both deception in terms of reporting false profits, and it was bribery in respect to the bankers who received kickbacks. Uh, and those included Barclays, VestLB, and Wardley, the Hong Kong bank subsidiary. So this was a classic case of the corruption of the banking system. It came to light that BMF had issued a lot of bad loans while employees, executives, and their relatives received handsome payments directly or indirectly from Mr. Tan's companies all as consultation fees. Additionally, Tan was making false and misleading statements on the financial state of Carrion. By all accounts, it was rotten to the core. Despite all the damning evidence, trial judge Justice Dennis Barker sparked public outrage when he somewhat dubiously threw out all the charges in 1987 leading to the acquittal of four of the six defendants on trial, one of them being Tan. Barker resigned in March 1988 and then tragically crashed his car while in Cyprus in November of 1989. When Carrion was dissolved, it had debts of around $1.3 billion, $230 million, which still remain unaccounted for. Carrion was a tale made for fiction, running the gamut of corruption, human greed, fraudulent accounting, and false profits that spanned across countries. It's hard to tell if it was a fall from grace or masterful, devious deception. Within the very insular society of Upper Crust Hong Kong, bankers and advisors took bribes in return for fat consulting fees, and the alleged Malaysian politicians, including the Prime Minister, allowed this to occur under their watch, bankrolling a company that was thought to be a darling in the stock market. Money has that effect on people. It makes some people bend the rules and others think that the rules simply don't apply to them. What's most disconcerting about Carrion is the lack of resolution. To this day, almost 40 years later, we still have a bevy of conflicting explanations, justifications, and deflections. We may never know the full story. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't takeaways that we can glean from this. Compared to some of the world's largest scandals, especially as it relates to accounting, one of the greatest lessons that we can focus on is to not just look at the numbers. Ian Robinson, the author who wrote the book, The Joker's Downfall, The True Story of Carrion, talks about the lessons here, being that it's about the people not numbers. Meaning when you look into businesses, get to know the people running the business. 
who they are, what they do, study the premise, walk around, and look for patterns. Otherwise, if you're only guided by numbers, you're behaving myopically for short-term privilege. The ease with which supposedly professional people are bamboozled. I mean, you know, I don't think that John Marshall at PricewaterhouseCoopers was dishonest, but he was very foolish and he was very naive to become the chairman of a company like that without even looking more closely at his books, which you yourself were auditing. I mean, it was a conflict of interest in the start. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, this is you know on the same level as Enron and Arthur Anderson. You know, a few years later, these major auditing firms. I mean, there's some very dubious things go on in the in terms of the relationships they have with their clients. Auditors are supposed to represent outside interests. I mean, I.e., small shareholders and so on. But actually, after the time, they're behaving as, as the dog's bodies of, of, of management. And above all else, trust your instincts. After all, it's better to cling to safe shores than end up swimming with the fishes. Special thanks to Philip Bowering for his contributions to this episode and sharing his research and expertise in the Asian markets and on the spectacular downfall of Carrying Group. And thank you for tuning in this week to The Great Fail, a program that spotlights some of the most infamous case studies of failed businesses, brands, and ideas, and goes beyond that to garner lessons and wisdom so that we all can learn from the greatest mistakes. The Great Fail is part of the Adweek Podcast Network and Acast Creator Network. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of these episodes would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Connect with us at The Great Fail on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that we can continue bringing you more episodes. And remember, with great failure comes great liability. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.